we're working our way through the book of James, and we're up to chapter 4. But we're not actually going to progress any further in the book of James today. It's a topical sermon today, and it's on what it means to submit to God. And last week we talked about that. It's a command that God has given us in the book of James. But what does it actually mean, and how do we do it? And so I'm going to use Jesus as an example, in particular his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, as an example of submission to the Lord. So let's start by reciting our memory verses. So, you ready? Nice big voices. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Uh-huh. Now that word perfect there means mature or whole. And we're going to find out that that also applies to Jesus. So even though he was born with a perfect human nature, he wasn't born with a sin nature, he still needed to be made whole or complete. So let's pray. Father, Lord, just like Jesus was chosen to be the high priest. Jesus was called to be the high priest. And one of the qualifications is that the high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. They need to be able to know what it's like to be human and to be weak. And so Jesus, when you lived your life on earth, you went through and you experienced all the suffering and all the pain and all the weakness and the tiredness and the hunger that we also experience, and all the temptations and the trials as well. So we thank you that you do understand us. We thank you that you can sympathize with us. And we thank you that you are our compassionate and merciful high priest, who we can go to at any time. So we just thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do we need to live a life that pleases God? A life that is free from the curse that comes from following our sinful nature? (laughs) Well, to humble ourselves and ask God for his grace, his favor, his help, his power, his strength, his desires, his intervention in our lives. Now, all this is by grace. It's undeserved, unearned, unmerited. God wants to give it to us. But there's only one thing we need to do. This is revision from last week, remember? One thing we need to do to receive this. We need to come how? Humbly, yeah. We need to come humbly. Because what happens if we are proud? What does James say about that in chapter 4? God resists the proud. Okay, He won't help the proud. He only helps the humble. So, why do we still struggle with sin so much? I mean, are we missing something here? After all, James says that all we need to do is Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It can't be that hard, right? So, if you were to ask me, David, are you submitted to God? I would say, of course, I love God. I'd do anything for him, even die for him. But this sounds like what the disciples said on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Well, I'll die for you. Yep, I'll do anything for you, Jesus. But 
what do they do? <laughs> they all abandon him, right? Then you could ask me, David, if you are really 100% submitted to God, then why do you still struggle with loving your wife and children at all times? Hmm. I would then have to admit that I'm not always submitted to God. Because if I was completely or 100% submitted to God, then I would not be having problems loving my wife and children 100% of the time, you see. So we all recognize that we struggle with various sins and we might say, yeah, nobody's perfect. Oh, wow, how humble is that? You know? <laughs> nobody's perfect here. But it's much harder, I believe, to go to the next step and to realize or admit that in those times, in those instances, that I am not submitted to God. Now, why is that a hard thing to admit? Well, it means that instead I was submitted to Satan. Satan was controlling me, yeah? Via my human nature, my sinful human nature. I was therefore Satan's slave and carrying out Satan's desires instead of God's in that particular area of my life and at that time. So, this is something that we've been studying in the last couple of weeks. It's a very difficult topic to talk about because we don't like to be thought of as being controlled by our sinful nature, which was evil and wrong and selfish and mean and nasty. But the fact is that if I really was submitted to God, then I wouldn't have sinned. I wouldn't be struggling with sin. That's it. If I was really submitted to God, I would have been controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit and all my actions, words and thoughts and inner motives would have all been pleasing to God and would have demonstrated the fruits of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience and also the fruits of righteousness. So I'm just going to read Romans 8, 5 and 6 to summarize what we've been talking about just now. It says, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. Only sinful things, yeah? But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So it's one or the other, yeah? So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. So that's the problem with our sinful nature. It's always wrong, it's always evil, it's always selfish. So basically, today, I'm going to suggest that if there are parts of my life which are not submitted to God, and there always will be because none of us are perfect yet, right? What we're saying is that there are parts of our lives that are given over to Satan. And the first step to overcoming sin and living a life that pleases God is to submit and to take these parts of our lives which are given over to Satan and give them back to God. So if I'm still controlled by a fear or an addiction or unforgiveness, anything like that, it could be absolutely anything, it means that by default, that area of my life is being controlled by Satan via my sinful nature. Remember Ephesians says Satan is the, the spirit at work in the hearts of men. Ephesians chapter 2. So when I'm not submitted to God, I'm living and thinking like Satan, selfishly and pridefully. Remember, our sinful human nature is modeled after Satan. My new nature, according to the Spirit, is modeled after God. One is selfish, one is selfless. 
So what is it that stops us from submitting? It's that P word, that nasty P word, pride. And we had a quote from Spurgeon. I'm going to read it again this week. It says, I desire to whisper one little truth in your ear, and I pray that it may startle you. You are submitting even now. You say, not I. I am Lord of myself. I know you think so. But all the while you are submitting to the devil. The verse before us hints at this. Submit yourselves unto God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you do not submit to God, you will never resist the devil. And you will remain constantly under his tyrannical power. Which shall be your master, God or devil? For one of these must. No man is without a master. So when James says, submit to God, resist the devil, that's one choice we have. There's only one other choice, and that is to resist God and submit to the devil. Okay? It's very simple. We're either controlled by our sinful nature, or we are controlled by the Spirit. It's the same thing. So this week, the focus is on one thing, how to submit to God, and we're going to use Jesus as an example. Let's read verses 1 to 10 in James, just to remind us of what James is telling us and see how Jesus puts this into practice. So where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and cover and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. I love the word but. So the previous verses related to us. Now these verses relate to God. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, talking about Jesus, Jesus is both fully man and fully God. And some might say, and it's a reasonable question, why would Jesus have to submit to his Father, to God the Father? Jesus is already God and already perfect, born with a perfect human nature, and he lived a sinner's life. So why would Jesus have to submit to the Father? So it is true. Jesus has always been God. He is God, and he always will be God. And he was definitely born with a sinless or uncorrupted human nature. And he definitely lived a sinless life. He never sinned. However, the Bible tells us some amazing things about Jesus and his humanity. So while Jesus was fully God, he was also fully man. Firstly, just like we as human beings have limitations and weaknesses because of the frailty or weakness of our human nature and body, so did Jesus while living on the earth as a man. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus got tired and hungry. He was grieved and hurt by other people's sin and hardness of heart. And he experienced all the emotions that we do as human beings. Grief and joy and sorrow. 
Now, in Hebrews 5.8, it says that Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. And that can be a confusing statement. But let's come back to us first. We have to grow in discipline and character and obedience. And in the same way, so does Jesus. That's what this verse is saying. I'm going to explain this as we go. So remember that to be qualified as a compassionate high priest, Jesus had to experience life as we do. Our high priest must be able to sympathize with us and relate to us because he knows what it's like to be us. So let's read Hebrews 5 verses 4 to 10. It says, And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God, who said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And in another passage God said to him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. What's another way of describing deep reverence? Humility. What's the only autobiographical statement that Jesus said about himself? I am humble and lowly of heart. It's the only autobiographical statement Jesus ever said about himself. I am humble and lowly of heart. So, the Father heard him. Why? Because of his deep reverence for God, his humility. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest. And he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So this passage is all about Jesus being qualified to be our high priest, the one who can understand human sorrow, suffering and weakness and pain, because he also experienced life here on earth and endured much hardship. Now think about what Jesus went through when he was here on earth. He was rejected and even by his family. He was betrayed, he was falsely accused, misunderstood, misrepresented, unappreciated. He has often worked to the point of exhaustion and he lived his entire life in poverty. As far as the scriptures portray his life, Jesus said of himself, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So, as learning, suffering and death are a part of the life experience of all people, Jesus was no exception. And although he never sinned, he did experience temptation and human weakness. And because of this, he can fully relate to our struggles and is therefore a compassionate high priest. Now, let's go back to Jesus' early life when he was 12 years old. And we'll see, like, just like we had to grow up, he had to grow up too. So Luke 2, 45-52. So when they did not find him, this is Mary and Joseph, his family, going to Jerusalem when he was about 12, and Jesus stayed behind. And they went away a day's journey, and they realized, whoops, Jesus is not with us. <laughs> and so they make their day's journey back to Jerusalem, and that's the background to this passage. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, seeking him. 
Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and was subject or obedient to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. So, looking at Jesus increased in stature, (laughs) Jesus knows what it's like to grow up and experience what it's like to be a baby and a toddler, a young child, an adolescent, a young adult, and then a fully grown man. He knows what it's like to go through puberty. He knows what it's like to have pimples. So as you go through life, you know that Jesus has also experienced those same trials, those same difficulties. Jesus knows that it can be difficult to get along with your parents. We just read that, right? Jesus, as a human, increased in stature, meaning that he experienced what it is like both to physically and emotionally grow up. And also, something we know from the scriptures is that Jesus experienced loss in his family. His dad, Joseph, died sometime before he started ministry. And Jesus, being the oldest son, would have had the responsibility of looking after the family, of providing for the family. And then it also says in that passage that Jesus increased in wisdom. What does this mean? Well, at 12 years of age, what was Jesus doing? He was studying the scriptures. He was asking questions of the religious leaders. So being fully human, Jesus had to learn things just like we do. Just like we have to invest so much time into understanding the scriptures so we can know God and experience a deeper relationship with him. Well, so did Jesus. Jesus' human brain, as God, he knows everything, but his human brain wasn't born pre-programmed, I believe, with all the knowledge of the scriptures. So like everyone else, Jesus had to learn to read. Just because he's God, he's born as God, he was also fully man. As a baby growing up, as a young child, he had to learn to read. And then learn to memorize scripture. And then the discipline of cultivating a devotional life with the Father as he grew older. These are all things that Jesus had to do. Back to Hebrews chapter 5 verses 8 and 9. We'll read those verses. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, that means made whole or complete, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. So, go and explain that statement, Jesus learned obedience. And I've got a good quote from gotquestions.com, and this is how they put it. Jesus learned obedience not in the sense that he was prone to disobedience and had to bring rebelliousness under control but in the sense that he fully entered the human experience. As a child, he obeyed his parents, as we read before. As an adult, he obeyed the law, Matthew 5.17, and fulfilled all righteousness, Matthew 3.15. 
All his life, Jesus completely fulfilled the Father's will, John 8.29 and other scriptures. He knew what obedience was prior to his incarnation, like when he was still in heaven, of course. But he learned obedience on earth by experiencing it. That's the important point. He learned obedience on earth by experiencing it. In every situation, no matter how difficult, the Son was obedient to the Father. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I have offered my back to those who beat me. And that scripture comes from Isaiah 50, verses 5 and 6. We'll read that later. And what about the phrase, Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered? So we understand what it means to learn obedience, but what does it mean by the things he suffered? Well, guess what? This comes right back to our life and the way we grow too, right? It means that Jesus willingly endured a challenging process that transformed him. Okay, Jesus willingly endured a challenging process that transformed him. Now, what's the memory verse? My brethren, cannot all joy in your form to various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect. What does that mean? Made whole or complete, lacking nothing. It's very similar to Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, which says, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, made whole or complete, that same Greek word. So trials, temptations, persecution and hard times are what God uses to grow us, to make us complete or perfect. And the same was true for Jesus. Again, the Greek word translated perfect in James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4 is the same Greek word translated perfect in Hebrews 2.10 and 5.9. It means to make whole or complete. So I'm going to read Hebrews 2.10. is emphasizes what we're saying here. For it was fitting for him, the Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bring many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect, and that's the same word, whole or complete, through sufferings. So how did the Father make Jesus whole or complete? It was through sufferings. That was Hebrews 2.10. It's the same thing as what it says in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. So just like us, Jesus was made mature as a man, as a human, by what he suffered, by the trials he went through. And another quote from gotquestions.com puts it well when it says, Jesus chose to endure an unpleasant, challenging process because... It was the will of his Father for his brief time on earth. After that process, Jesus had been made perfect. It is crucial to note that perfect here means complete, as in finishing a full course of training or education. Or, in Jesus' case, he finished an altogether righteous human life and he had a complete, and I've added their experiential understanding of human frailty and suffering. So, Jesus has literally experienced what we experience. Now, I'm going to move on to what I believe is the greatest example of submission that we're ever going to find. And it's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So James 4, 7 says, 
Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And again, I don't think there's any greater example of this kind of submission than Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus faced what I believe was the hardest battle of all, the submission of his human will to the Father's will. So, you know, sometimes we think we need to control what we do without actually realizing that what we do comes from what we think. We need to first control the desires, which will then control what we do. We need to control our thoughts first. We need to control the deep part of us. We need to bring that into submission. Because what we desire will cause us, well, if we desire something, we will end up doing it eventually. We can try and suppress it, but it will come out eventually. But if we deal with those desires, then we can win those battles. The next time you face that temptation, we'll be less likely to succumb to it. Why? Because the desire to do it will have already been put to death, or at least have been weakened. So, basically, in submitting to the Lord, we are, in effect, preparing our hearts to seek and serve the Lord, but actively seeking the Lord's help to overcome or submit those areas of our lives that we struggle with at the level of desire or will. Now, I'll give you an example. All right, my kids like stories, so I'll give you a story. Now, I realized the harm chocolate was doing to me on my waistline, so I said, no more chocolate, and my desire was to get down to about 80 kilos. And so, guess what? I had a greater desire than eating chocolate and so it overcame my desire to eat chocolate, and I lost weight. I did get down to 80 kilos. It was good. But you know what? I hadn't actually dealt with my desire and my love for chocolate. And so what happened when I got to 80 kilos? I started eating chocolate again, you see? So unless I deal with the root cause, which is my love for chocolate, and its control over me, then I'm not going to win this battle with chocolate. I can have a temporary win, because it could be something I want more than chocolate, and I can struggle on this human level, on the level of my behavior, but I haven't touched my desires. So that's what I'm talking about. And we're going to see that Jesus in the garden was not doing anything. He was dealing with his desires. Okay, not evil desires. It's just submission of his will to the Father. So the first one is Mark 14, verses 13 to 42. This is the night that Jesus was betrayed. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, Sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned and found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? 
Keep watch and pray so that you will not give into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then, as you know, Judas comes along and kisses him. So, as we read earlier, submitting to God means that we draw near to God. That's the next verse in James chapter 4. So here we see Jesus wrestling with his will and making the painful and difficult choice to submit to the Father's will. So how did he do it? By watching and praying. Jesus took the issue he was struggling with to the Father and wrestled in prayer until he had the victory. After this point, in a sense, Jesus had it easy. The struggle was over. He was submitted to the Father. The Father's will had become his will. The horrors of the cross were now what Jesus, even in his humanity, was content to endure. That's okay. I'm content with this. I'm happy to go through with this. He had decided on his course and there was no turning back and no hesitation. So a quick question here is, how long did Jesus pray for? Well, Matthew 26.40 tells us that Jesus prayed for one hour. He went away and prayed for one hour. And then it says, or in the previous verse we just read, that he went and prayed three times. So if he prayed one hour each time, that's a total of three hours of prayer. Remember, he was in agony. And we're going to read Luke's account of this as well. So Luke 22, verses 39 to 46, and we get a different perspective of this as well here. Then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, and this is a command, pray that you will not give in to temptation. Hmm. Pray. Yeah, pray specifically that you will not give in to temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. At last he stood up again and returned to the disciples. There's quite a period of time that Jesus is agonizing over this decision. At last he stood up again and returned to the disciples, only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. So what was it that the Father was asking Jesus to do, that Jesus, in his humanity, found exceedingly difficult to obey or submit to? Well, the Old Testament gives us the best answer. It's Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. And these are very famous verses. It's all about the suffering servant. So let's read and let's see what Jesus was about to face at Calvary on the cross and the whole process that was going to happen there. So starting Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. 
but many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, no one would scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not been told, and they will understand what they had not heard about. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant, speaking of Jesus, grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. Okay, despised, rejected, men of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. This is talking about his experience on the cross. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. That's one of the hardest things that Jesus endured was the wrath of God being poured out on him. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong, and he had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. And verse 10 is very key here but it was the lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief you see that it was the lord's good plan the father's good plan to crush him to crush jesus and to cause him grief yet when his life is made an offering for sin he will have many descendants he will enjoy a long life and the lord's good plan will prosper in his hands there's a good outcome to this plan you see when he, Jesus, sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. So, why was Jesus so distressed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Why was he saying, God, if there's any other way to deal with this problem of sin, which is separating man from God, let's do the other way. But there is no other way. There was no other way. There's only one way, and that's Jesus suffering in our place. That's why he was so distressed that he was sweating great drops of blood. And God the Father had to send an angel to strengthen him. So, 
How did Jesus overcome the temptation to take the easy way out, to avoid the incredibly intense physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering involved in taking our place as the once-for-all-time sacrifice for the sins of all mankind? Well, we know that the easy choice is always just to give up, right? The easy choice is just to give in to the sin. If you're struggling with whatever it might be, it could be anger, it could be unforgiveness, the easy thing to do is just not to forgive. It's just to get angry. It's just to say those words and not hold them back, yeah? The struggle's over. But Jesus never took the easy way out. Look at how he prepared his heart to obey the will of the Father. And this, again, is in the context of the cross and the whole Calvary experience. So Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 7. The Sovereign Lord has given me his words of wisdom so that I know how to comfort the weary. Morning by morning he wakens me and opens my understanding to his will. Don't you love that? Morning by morning he wakens me and opens my understanding to his will. This is the Father, morning by morning, waking the Son and opening the understanding of his Son to his will. The Sovereign Lord has spoken to me, and I have listened. I have not rebelled or turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. These are some more things that Jesus suffered. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a stone, determined to do his will. And I know that I will not be put to shame. Verse 7 is incredible for me. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a stone, determined to do His will. I have chosen to do His will. I have set my face like a stone. And I know that I will not be put to shame. This is the trust that Jesus has in the Father that it's all going to work out for good. So, again, an amazing passage, and it shows how Jesus actively, day by day, morning by morning, made time to seek relationship with the Father, to know the will of the Father, and to submit to the Father's will, so that he would always do those things that please him, John 8, 29. So Jesus strengthened his spirit by spending time with the Father and in the Word of God and daily made a conscious and deliberate decision to obey the Father. Therefore, when any trial came, especially Calvary, dying on the cross, Jesus was able to willingly obey. Why? Because his heart was already prepared. He had already done the hard yards in the morning in prayer. And so whatever came, he already knew it was coming because the Father had already told him. and you're already submitted to that will, that's where the battle was won. So let's get some stuff for us here. Let's pull this apart a little bit and break it down so we can put this into practice. So who was Jesus praying to and who should we pray to? Well, Jesus was praying to his Abba or Daddy Father. Mark 14.36 and Luke 22.42 Jesus knew where to go to find help. What did it say in Isaiah 50 verse 7? Because the Sovereign Lord helps me. Not helped, it's helps, it's continuous. He knows where to go to find help. 
Now Jesus also commands us to pray directly to the Father. John 16.23-24 And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. It's a promise. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and keep on asking and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now we come back to this question of how long did Jesus pray for? Again, it's about probably three hours, three lots of one hour. What this shows is persevering prayer. There's many parables in the scriptures that Jesus told about why we should pray and keep on praying. God rewards persevering prayer. And here is an example of Jesus showing, demonstrating how to keep on asking, keep on knocking, and keep on seeking. Now, it's not a one-time event. It's not just the three hours before Jesus was betrayed. This is a morning-by-morning thing, day-by-day. Isaiah 54 and 5. Morning-by-morning, he wakens me and opens my understanding to his will. The Sovereign Lord has spoken to me and I have listened. I have not rebelled or turned away. So every morning Jesus prayed to the Father, listening for God's will and submitting to it. So submission to the Father was a daily event for Jesus because Jesus prayed every day and was in the Word every day. He was able to obey every day and therefore enjoy the joy of the Lord every day. That sweet abiding in the presence of God as we walk in obedience with him walk with him. So the point here is that I must be willing, or we as Christians must be willing, to go the distance, to run the hard yards, to make the time to pray that I will be submitted to God in specific areas of my life. So if I know that I'm weak in one area of my life, then it's no good just to read the Bible and, you know, I've done my chapters for the day. and I mean, that's good. It's always going to help some. But when Jesus prayed, it was specific for the need that he had at that time. So we need to use our time spent with the Lord well. So, again, I'll say it again, the battle against sin is won on our knees before the temptation comes. Think of it this way, a practical example. An unprepared, untrained army will be defeated. If an unprepared, untrained army goes to war, they're going to be defeated. But if the army takes the time to prepare and train and is properly equipped, they will experience victory. So if we go into the day unprepared, untrained, we will be defeated. But if we take the time to previously prepare and train and equip ourselves, we will experience victory. We can't just think, and sometimes you know, we think, oh, I had victory before. I can do it again. No, it wasn't you who did it last time. It was God. And if you think you can do it, you're fooling yourself. And we can think, well, I'll just wait for the next battle. I'll be strong. I can say no again. I don't need to prepare. I don't need to (laughs) equip myself. I don't need to train. I don't need to strengthen my spirit. So, like any good soldier or army, we prepare now so we can win later. Does that make sense? We prepare now so we can win later. Victories don't just happen. They are prepared and planned. And as we've read in previous weeks, we reap what we sow. And you can see Galatians 6, 7 to 8. 
If you sow to the flesh, you reap the flesh. If you sow to the Spirit, you reap the Spirit. Now, what was Jesus praying for? Well, again, the Old Testament gives us more insight into the events of Calvary than the New Testament does in a lot of ways. Jesus was praying specifically for the strength not to give into temptation, for the strength to obey the will of his Father, that we'd have the strength to submit to the Father. What does it say in verse 7 of Isaiah 50? Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a stone, determined to do his will. And I know that I will not be put to shame. Now, compare this to Hebrews 4, 14-16. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and will find grace to help us when we need it most. What did Jesus do? He prayed to the Father for help. What's God inviting us to do? Go to the Father and ask for help. Go, come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we'll find grace to help us when we need it most. Jesus did it. I mean, if he needed to do it, how much more do we? So Jesus was praying for and seeking God's strength not to give into temptation, for the strength to obey the will of the Father, that he'd be willing to submit to the Father. He was setting his face like a stone. That's a funny phrase there. What does it mean? It means to be uncompromising, unchanging, determined, resolved, committed to doing the will of the Father. And this is the example that we need to follow. If Jesus needed to do this to have victory over sin, then how much more do we with our sinful nature? So now we move on to the next question. What does Jesus command us to pray for specifically? Well, what did he tell the disciples in Luke 22:40? Pray that you will not give in to temptation. And Mark 14, 37 and 38. Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And so this is where the battle is at. We must bring our desires into subjection. And as I said about the chocolate problem, in my experience, we tend to focus on the outward action and not doing that particular thing, but not really deal with the desire to do that particular thing. But the problem is, if we continue thinking a certain way or desiring a certain thing, then we'll eventually, inevitably, act on that desire. It's all about cause and effect. A good verse to help us here is 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4. It says, We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. So what are God's weapons used for? To knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. And some of the human reasoning we have is, I need this or I want that. This is good for me. This is going to make me feel good. No, it won't. It's bad. It's going to hurt you. It's a stronghold of human reasoning. It's a false argument. It needs to go. It needs to be destroyed by God's mighty weapons. Prayer. 
Now, what was it like for Jesus to wrestle with the temptation to skip the cross to take the easy way out? Well, the answer is very simple. It was sheer agony of spirit. It was the hardest thing he had to do. He sweat great drops of blood. Nothing compares to the intensity of Jesus' cry for the Father's help. Jesus was honest in saying that in his humanity, he was not looking forward to being separated from the Father. He was not looking forward to experiencing the wrath of God due to sin being poured out on himself. And he was not looking forward to the physical pain of the torture and crucifixion and being abandoned and betrayed, etc. So what's it going to be like for us when we face our own Gethsemane? (laughs) What do you mean, David? Our own Gethsemane. Well, we need to die too. Okay, Our sinful nature needs to die. We need to put ourselves to death. The old part of us, the sinful nature part. And guess how it's going to feel? Sheer agony of spirit. It's going to hurt. A part of us is dying. A part of us that we love is dying. We're giving up things we love. Even though they're wrong things, they're still things we love. So remember that when we submit to God, we are putting ourselves, our old selves, the part of us that hates God and is in rebellion against God, the part of us that loves to sin, we're putting that to death. When we submit to God, we are putting our old self to death. Romans 6, 10, 11 explains this. When Jesus died, he died once to break the power of sin, but now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, so we can reverse that. If we don't do that, then we are alive to the power of sin and dead to God through Jesus Christ, (laughs) practically speaking. Not positionally, because once you're saved, I believe you're always saved, because it's not what we do, it's what Christ has done. But on a practical level, our relationship with God is broken by sin. So the only way to live for Christ is to be dead to sin. Yeah, The only way to be alive, to live for Christ, is to be dead to sin. Romans 8, 12 and 13 reaffirms this. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. You see these desires again? For if you live by its dictates, its desires, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. Live for Christ. And Colossians 3, 1-5. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Choose to think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life. Again, this whole thing of dying, we have to have our own Gethsemane experience on multiple occasions because we have many desires of our human nature which need to be put to death. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Again, it's talking about the desires of your sinful nature. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. 
Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshipping the things of this world. Another verse, Galatians 5, 24-25. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Again, where do we go for help to do this? We go back to Jesus, don't we? What he did on the cross. It's all done there, yeah? Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So, conclusion and application to all this. What did the disciples do while Jesus was praying? They slept, yeah? Now, what instruction did Jesus give them? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Mark 14, 38. So, spending quality, undistracted time with the Lord, where we consciously make a deliberate choice to wrestle with and agonize over the specific issues that we are struggling with, is what makes us strong. So, those sinful desires need to be put to death. A picture of our pride, sin, addictions, vices, whatever it may be for us, will only come after we have laid it before the Lord and surrendered it to Him. The battle is won on our knees. Again, I'll say it. Victory doesn't just happen. Okay? It doesn't just happen. It's not something we choose to do one day. I don't want to do that anymore. We intentionally make time with the Lord to present our request to Him and ask and keep on asking day by day for His grace to help us in our time of need. Now, what is our time of need? Our whole life. Okay? We are to keep on asking for our whole life. There's always going to be things we're struggling with. And as we deal with one, there's going to be something else. And the other thing might come back. Those desires might start coming back. You have to put them to death again. That old man, he's really tenacious. He doesn't want to stay down in that coffin. He wants to get up, <laughs> get out of that coffin. You've got to put him back in. So this is where the battle really is. It's so hard to make time to spend with the Lord. Instead, just like the disciples, we are prone to literally sleep the time away and then wonder why we fall on our face. Now, other ways we can waste the time is we can TV the time away or sport the time away or recreate the time away, or gym the time away, or work the time away, or socialize the time away, or family the time away, or gain the time away, or read the time away. If we waste the time that God has given us to spend with Him, the result is always the same. We will not have put to death the desires of a sinful nature, and we will therefore eventually and inevitably give in to the temptation. So. The example of Jesus here. Three times Jesus wrestled with the same question, the same issue, each time submitting to the Father. And I just want to leave with this take-home message. The most important thing is that it's not going to be easy. Submitting to God and drawing near to God is not an easy thing to do. Our sinful nature is stubborn and will not give in easily. Often the temptation will come back again and again. The desires for that thing will come back again and again. We must be disciplined and intentional if we are going to have success.
any half-heartedness or complacency, any thing where we say, I'll allow a little bit of that in my life, and we don't put it completely to death, is going to end in failure. We are all in or we are all out. There is no middle ground. We need to be willing to put the old man completely to death, to crucify him, to be willing to live without those worldly things or worldly desires that our sin nature loves. We need to put to death those desires, those things, those evil desires that lurk in our hearts, as I said in Colossians. So, I'll finish with Hebrews 12, 3 and 4. This is the writer of Hebrews' exhortation to us, that we won't become weary and give up in our fight against sin. It says this, Think of all the hostility Jesus endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. So hopefully today you understand that the struggle against sin is not easy, but it is easy to become weary and give up in your struggle against sin. The way to overcome that giving up and being weary is to Think of all the hostility Jesus endured from sinful people. Think of all the stuff that Jesus went through. He got help. He did it. I can too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the amazing life that Jesus lived, for the amazing example of living a perfect life. When you lived down him, Lord Jesus, day by day, listening to the Father, asking what His will was, submitting to His will, and then being able to walk in obedience. Help us to do the same thing in our lives, we pray. Give us those desires to put You first, to submit to You and draw near to You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.